Okay, uh, tonight we are talking about, uh, we've been working through the five souls, we've kind of hit that, we're going to be talking about Christ alone. I want to pray for us, but before I do, I kind of want to just lay out why we've done this, sort of the way that we've done this in building the the three weeks up that we have. Hang on one second, I want to make sure I'm, I'm on time here. So, we initially started by talking about Scripture alone, and of course the reason we wanted to talk about Scripture alone first is because all of these truths either come out of the Scripture or we can't really believe with, with any high degree of certainty that they are actually truths and not just some kind of logical uh, explanation that man has come up with. And so we have God's Word, and we believe that it is God's Word given to us, that if Jesus, this, this is the embodiment of Christ in the Word of God given to us, and that through Scripture alone what we are delivered in coming to salvation is that we can only get there by grace alone, that there's no work, that there's no hope that we have under the law. Let me hit pause on that. Because when we think about the law, that really is going to shoot us to Christ alone and what he does. But once we realize that we are saved by grace alone, that comes through faith, which is a gift of God. So God's word is a gift to us that reveals our need, that we find a need for grace. And then the answer to that grace is faith that is given to us by the Father through the Holy Spirit so that we can appreciate this grace that is given to us embodied in Christ alone. And that, and, and Christ alone on the cross is pointing not to a bunch of people who get to spend eternity forever in every tribe, tongue, and, and nation, but there's something bigger than that, there's something greater than that, and that is simply that God receives glory eternally for these things. We are, in a sense, a byproduct of the greater desire, which is the glory of God purchased by Christ alone, which we accept through faith alone, by grace, and that is open to us by God's word. So you can kind of see the progression that we're going through. So let me pray, and we're going to jump into some quick history, and I'm really excited about what we get to look at tonight. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, as we open up your word, I pray that we, we would be able to, even though this teaching is a little bit different than a preaching, I, I, I pray that we would be able to see Jesus well. I, I pray that your word w- would be precisely what it is, this, this beautiful clarification of who Jesus is. And as we put our eyes on the cross, as we, as we see the work of Jesus, that it would well up within us something. And, and not something that's man-centered and not something that, that is emotionally driven, but would it be something that is spiritually and supernaturally wrought by your Holy Spirit in breathing faith into us? And Father, maybe there are people in this room who have yet to truly respond in faith to who Jesus is and what he has done on the cross, and I pray that you would save them. I pray that they would see Jesus and that they would receive salvation. But for those of us, the many of us who have probably been walking in this faith, I pray that we would see with new eyes who our Savior is. I I pray that we would be given through the gift of your word and your spirit a freshness, um, a a softening of our heart and our mind as we realize just who Jesus was for us on our behalf to display your glory and in all the many ways that Jesus is far more than we could have ever hoped for or imagined, but is precisely what we needed. And so, Father, I just pray that over each and every soul. I I pray over the kids that are in the hallway. I pray, God, that you would do work in them. Thank you for the workers who are volunteering. Make us people this this evening who are diligent, who love your word, who are thoughtful, and who are moved by your spirit. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
All right, so like I said, I'm going to start with a very, very brief history, and then I want us to look at Jesus Christ, his, his sufficiency on the cross, and, and, and how he is absolutely exclusive there. So I've given you the cheat sheet. So Jesus lived, you know, we can kind of flip through the Gospels, we can see the life of Christ, and at the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, the church is born. And from, from this small seed of a church, persecution pours in, and more of God's love and grace pour out as the spreading of the gospel begins. And you can look at all of these cool YouTube videos that show the spreading of Christianity, but persecution comes in, and Christianity begins to spread. Now, from day one, there was no question about this, it was Christ's death as sacrificial for sin before God that everybody agreed with. And nobody was thinking, man, Paul's really got this thing down. I mean, Jesus was awesome, but Paul, like this guy, like nobody's thinking that. Nobody's thinking that about any of the apostles. Everybody is looking at the work of Christ and saying, it's him. It all centers on Christ. And so that's kind of where it begins. And I want to start with that because most of our, our conversation has been, why did the reformers feel the need to say, we've got to dial down on this truth because somebody's screwing up. And in this truth, in Christ alone, it actually started very good. It started very strong. And everybody was kind of head nodding, thumbs up, like it, shake. Yes, it is through Christ and through Christ alone. This would be a truth that was, of course, held by Rome, that Christ's identity, his uniqueness, him being Lord, him being Savior, this would all have been accepted true. Yes, very, very good. Now, in Chalcedon, this would be in 451 AD, so we're talking about centuries later, they do gather together. I think somebody talked about the Council of Nicaea where they talked about the Trinity, but in this Chalcedonian creed, when they gathered together in what is now Turkey, their, their main emphasis was, who is Jesus? All right, so Jesus is like the main crux of our faith. It's Christianity, Christianity. So, so we get that, but since this time, 450 years have passed by, and we've had a number of errors. Josiah, you can just throw those up. I didn't want to read these, but I did want you to get an idea of what 400 years of church life was looking like and some things that people were dealing with. You got that for me, Josiah? There they are. Okay, so they're little. Um, if you have poor eyesight, I will print this for you later. Just kind of smile and nod right now. Nobody will know. And so I'm not going to read these, but from docetism, adoptionism, modalism, all the way down to monophysitism, these are all different beliefs that people had about Christ. And so you can see why there was a need for Christian leaders to gather together and come up with a creed with this doctrinal statement that everyone could gather around and say without a shadow of a doubt, this is what we believe. So here are the errors, and in Chalcedon, what they, what they concluded was simply this, the deity and the humanity of Christ existing in two natures in one person. Now that's pretty philosophical. Typically on Sunday mornings, the way that we use this truth in the same way is saying that Jesus is fully God and fully man. So, so all of this is kind of answered in something that we hear Sunday in and Sunday out. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Now here's the thing. Catholicism would still agree with this. That, that they would still agree, Jesus is fully God, Jesus is fully man. So now here's my question to you. You know what I'm talking about tonight. Jesus alone. It is only through Christ alone that salvation exists. So why would the reformers feel the need to make this a statement? Non-rhetorical. Anybody got an idea? We're not preaching, so we can do questions and ask all. Why? I mean, everybody in the church would agree, yeah, that's whack, right? Or at least the majority of them. So why make this sola about Christ alone? Okay, say, say it again, Daniel. 
Okay, so uh, nailed it. A plus, five points to the camp store. The reason is because they would agree that Jesus was exclusive, but they would not necessarily agree that Jesus was sufficient. Now, now those are two words that can kind of right in it and right out. So let me kind of explain what I mean by that. He's exclusive. Jesus is exclusive in that all others couldn't do it. Anyone. Doesn't matter who you go to. Doesn't matter what religious belief. Jesus is exclusive. There is no other person you can go to. Exclusive. But he is also completely sufficient. In other words, Jesus did it all. He did everything. So in one sense, he was what no one else is. And on the other hand, he did not what no one, he did everything that had to be done. I, 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 maybe an easier way to look at this is, let's just think of this whole, Christ alone, Jesus alone. It's the difference in saying it this way. Exclusive would be Jesus alone. It's Jesus alone. And sufficiency would be Jesus alone. You see the difference in that? And that was where, y'all aren't head nodding me. Do y'all see that this is kind of important? Do, like, do you see the difference in those two streams? And, and so the, 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 Catholic, the Christians of that age, they would say, Jesus alone. And everybody's like, yeah, man, yeah, head nodding. But in the moment you go to Jesus alone, that's where we started to hit some problems. And this came from sacramental theology. And in the past number of weeks, we've seen what uh, deeds, works, relics, rosary, indulgences cannot do. But tonight, we want to look at what Christ and only Christ can do. So as we kind of close the history book and we move into these truths, uh, you just need to know that, that Catholicism would have confessed Jesus as exclusive, but not as sufficient. So let me give you a quote from Luther. He's the guy to go to on this. I love this quote. And he says this, What I'm telling you, my man, you're on it. What I'm telling you is that it is easier for us humans to believe and trust in everything else than in the name of Christ, who alone is all in all, who is everything, and more difficult for us to rely on him in whom and through whom we possess all things. And, and, and this is kind of the, the cruel eternal irony of, of the church seeing, uh, the Catholic church seeing Jesus as exclusive but not sufficient. Because when, when you say, if you do this work of charity, or if you purchase this indulgence, or you, you, know, you participate in, in this relic, or, or this rosary prayer, or, or this, what you're doing is you're saying to natural, you're feeding the natural man. I can do this. I can say this prayer. I can give to charity. I can buy that. And is that not the exact opposite of the true gospel? Uh, they're saying, I can, I can, I can, but the true gospel requires us to say, I can't. And so, in, in a, a, a real bitter irony, they're feeding the natural man when he must receive a death blow for the spiritual man to come to life. Do you see that? And, that, and that's why this is of massive importance. And so, so, when we look at Jesus as exclusive and sufficient, I, we're going to talk about exclusivity first. So, so if you're a note taker, we're going to talk about as exclusivity first. And this is a little quote from uh, the London Baptist Confession of 1689, and it puts it this way. Christ and Christ alone, so you can see, right, you can see the exclusivity here, alone. Christ and Christ alone is fitted to be mediator between God and man. There, there's only one person that is fitted, that is appropriate, that can handle this role, that can stand in this gap, that can bear this weight, that can do this thing. There's only one, and that is Jesus. And then they, they break it down this way, and they say, he is the prophet, priest, 
and king of the church of God. Now, these three offices would have been Old Testament offices. Can somebody give me a name of a prophet? Okay, great. Can somebody give me a name of a king? Priest. Okay, so my guess is we don't have to be Old Testament scholars to say prophet, priest, and king existing in God's word. We have seen this before. But what we're going to realize is all three of these offices are actually in, in their infancy in the Old Testament pointing to the greater revelation of who Christ is as exclusive, as unique and fitting for this. So I, I'm going to give you one verse for each of the three. Here's the first one, prophet. This is Deuteronomy 18:15, and it says this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses speaking, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Now, this scripture from Deuteronomy is requoted verbatim all the way in Acts. So it's quoted here in Deuteronomy, but then we go all the way through redemptive history, the work of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, the, the explosion of the church, and now here we are in Acts. And when they think of a prophet, they point, when they think of the prophet, they think of Jesus, and they point back to this, recognizing that Moses was pointing forward to him. That was a lot of words. Did that make sense? Did that make sense? So as a prophet, Jesus instructs and reveals God's purposes. This is what we saw the Old Testament prophets do. They instructed and they revealed God's purposes. Well, what about as priests? We'll look at Hebrews 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Like, so, so in Hebrews, the author is writing, thinking of Christ, and he's saying we do have a priest. We've had priests in the past, and we do have a priest. We have this high priest, and, and he's, not, he's, he's sitting at the right hand of God in heaven in a place, a, a tent not built by human hands. Did you see that? Guess what you're sitting in? A tent. Built by human hands. And Hebrews is saying there's something way better than this. Now, they would have been like in a literal tent. We've got air conditioner and all this kind of wonderful stuff. But what scripture is saying is there is a high priest and he is much higher than this pulpit. He's much higher than anybody who will fill a pulpit on Sunday morning. Now, we don't use the terminology priest. They certainly would have back then, whether it's the Jews or whether you're thinking about the Catholics. They would have seen this. And this is pointing to something much bigger. Verse 2. In the true tent, the Lord set up, not man. We built this, but God has built something bigger. Verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest, the high priest, the eternal priest, also to have something to offer. And Jesus has something to offer. And what Jesus has to offer is absolutely exclusive and different, not just in any priest, but than any being could ever have offered. If you think about the Old Testament, and, and you kind of go into, well, I don't know where you go in your head. I go into Sunday school. Some of you guys will go back a little bit into church whenever you heard the sermon about the priest and how they would go and they would kill the lamb. And, or you might be thinking about Passover and how the, the lamb's blood was shed over the doorpost. But if you think about the priest doing this work, you think about the priest getting his hands dirty. I mean, it, this was not a fun job if, any, if anybody's ever slaughtered an animal. And, and so the priest is literally getting his hands covered in the blood of the sacrifice that is being made. But what is so unique about Christ is 
he does have something to offer. He's not the one performing the deed. It's not just done by Jesus, but he is the one receiving the deed. And so here we have something so much bigger and so much wider and so much greater than anything that they'd ever seen in the Old Testament. We have Jesus who is not just performing. In fact, in a sense, it is God who is performing, but it is Jesus who is offering himself up at, as the lamb. And we can see this in the crucifixion account. When we think about Jesus on the cross, breathing his last, the Bible says that he released his spirit. Jesus never was outside of control at any point. He chose to stay there. He chose to hang there. He chose to take that suffering. And then he laid down his life as a willing sacrifice. As priest, Jesus satisfies God's justice and he pays the price of sin. Now that may sound like the same thing, right? He satisfies God's justice and he pays the price of sin. It did happen in the exact same, like in the same place at the same time to the same person, Christ. But they are two very, very big things. God's wrath is satisfied. The, the knife was coming down on Isaac. And they said, whoa, no, do not do that. Well, when it was coming down on Christ, there was no voice that said no. It finished. The wrath of God was poured out. And in the pouring out of God's wrath, in the shedding of Christ's blood, then the price of sin had been paid. <clears throat> Thirdly, King, Acts 2.29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence, so, so you've seen prophet and priest, now we're going to see king. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. It's as though they're saying, hey, if you want to go see the tomb of David, we can. Everybody pile in the van, we can go down and we can see the tomb of David. Verse 30. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. So here we have David, like the king. Not the king that, that like people picked. That was Saul, right? Hiding in the luggage. Tall dude on the outside. Joker of a shrunk dude on the inside. And then you got David, this ruddy, handsome, I just hang out with sheep kind of guy. And, and like nobody's expecting, like, you bring a dog with sticks. That's Goliath right before he dies and his head gets cut off. And then they have this king and David comes in and he's killing ten thousands of enemies and like, that's the guy. It's the guy you want. And yet, in the Bible, the whole point is, hey, you want to go check out David's grave? Because here's the thing, the king that we wanted is still there. But the king that God has given is no longer there. You see that? In David, we have a king who was everything that anyone could have just about hoped for. He had his flaws. But you can walk to a grave and his bones are there. But when it comes to the king that God has provided, there's an empty grave. And there are no bones. And there is no death. Because not only is his kingdom eternal, but he too is eternal. Christ is our prophet, our priest, and our king. And so you can see how he is absolutely exclusive. Now here's the thing. Everybody's head nodding right now. Like everybody in history, except for the crazy like Apollon, uh, Apollinarians and all that kind of They're just like, uh -huh, yeah, all right, good, good, good. Here's where it kind of deviates. The sufficiency. This is the big disagreement and what necessitated Sola Christus, or in Christ alone. Not that that isn't a beautiful truth, it is. I, I don't like how I came up with this in my notes, but I couldn't come up with anything better. So I thought, I thought of it kind of in this way. The sufficiency of Christ, he's sufficient in power and scope, like the distance 
to which his sufficiency goes, and then secondarily, like in his depth and in his quantity. Does that, it won't make sense now, but that's the best way I could come up with. I'm sorry, I couldn't come up with anything better. So in, he's sufficient in power and scope. Hebrews 9.12 says it this way. He, being Christ, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Leave that up for a minute. So what we see is that for eternal redemption to be secured, for you to be able to put your head on a pillow at night and know that if, it, if your life is extinguished, you're going to glory instead of to horror, the only way that that happens is if the redemption which God desired for his people is absolutely secured. And the way that God's word says that redemption was secured was through the blood of Christ, and it happened how many times? Once. And this, this is massive. All the lambs, all the goats, all the bulls, all the doves, all the animals that, that could have. Isaac himself, all of that blood in the Old Testament. And th- let it, it should be gruesome. It's our sin. It's supposed to be gross. It's supposed to have a high cost. All of this blood, all of this death, all of this stank, all of this sacrifice leads up to this one moment. N- not just in redemptive history, but like in history. This one moment moment and all of that blood all of that death all of that sacrifice was absolutely utterly and unequivocally unequivocally not even close to enough and then jesus breathes his last and god says that's enough and so when we see the the the, the scope and the power of the work of jesus this would have been like culture shifting they had been sacrificed that had been life for forever. And then all of it, imagine for a moment, like we give the Jews a really hard time, and I get it, but imagine how hard it would be for your entire life to feel like this thing you needed to do to be made right with God, that your, your parents and your grandparents and the great-grandparents and anyone you'd ever heard of from oral tradition had done. Now all of a sudden this guy comes, dies on the cross, and God says, no more. That is a culture, you're going to, that's not, that's going to be hard for you. But the point is, God is emphasizing, he's lifting up the work of Christ on the cross, saying that is absolutely equivalent. It's, it's not like I'm going to hit pause or stop, I'm closing the app, the, the phone is destroying, this is a completely new deal, a new covenant, is how the Bible would put it. Piper, Piper puts it this way, and I love it. He says, Jesus' blood is infinite in value, therefore it is infinite in duration. The blood of Christ is of infinite value, therefore it makes sense that the duration of its work would be infinite. All right? It's also sufficient in depth and in quantity. Galatians 2. Now, by the way, if you decide that after this, you're for whatever reason super interested in knowing more about Christ alone and his sufficiency alone, Galatians is your book. Like, the book of Galatians is, hey, Jesus is enough for you. Hey, why are you doing that jacked up stuff? Hey, calm down. You just need, like, that's the whole book. So if you're like, I got to get more on the sufficiency of Christ. Galatians is your book tonight. Galatians 2.20 says this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, there's this change, I now live in the flesh 
I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's, let's hit pause on what that life looks like. Check out verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness... Now, here, here's, here's where the reformers were like, we got to circle, highlight, footnote this, because there's a problem in our church right now. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Now, notice the difference of what we just talked about, how, how far-reaching in, into human history, but also how far-reaching just into to depth of, of, of meaning, right? The, the death of Christ was. And now what we read is that if somebody is trying to attain, attain salvation, attain this grace, then you are erasing that the biggest thing that has ever been done in all of human and redemptive history. Like the pinnacle of everything that God has done, you're now grabbing the eraser and saying, eh, that's what's happening in Galatians. And Paul's like, whoa, 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 we can't do that. Now you can see how the reformers are going to get riled up because if law or deeds, if Catholic rites or rituals add anything, then Jesus' death is valueless. Grace dissolves dissolves in the process you can sort of think of your soul like this was how i grew up everybody was like there's a hole in your heart and it can only be filled by jesus okay exclusivity sufficiency that's all good stuff we could talk a little more on that but um but imagine for a moment that clear glass that is filled to the brim with water you know how surface tension works and you actually fill it beyond the brim you know what i'm talking about like it, it does the little bubble thing on the top so what scripture is arguing what scripture is saying is the requirement of your soul for salvation, the cup of the value of your soul, the death of Christ poured into it to the very brim. And if you believe that in somehow righteousness through the law, it, if there is one bubble floating in that glass, if there is room for one fraction of a drop to fall in and reside in that cup, Jesus' work is useless to you. It's useless to you because if Christ doesn't do everything, then you have nothing. Galatians 5. And, and it would have to be like if you can add something, then a void had to exist, right? Like we're all thinking people. If I can add something to a cup, then there must have been a void to begin with. Galatians 5 puts it even harder. I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, circumcision was given by God. This is a good thing. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. And, and, and let's play this forward. If you accept relics, if you accept indulgences, but now let's hit ourselves a little bit. If you look at your baptism, if you look at communion, if you look at walking down an aisle, if you look at raising a hand when everybody else's eyes are closed, if you look at your church involvement, if you look at the way that you love your wife or raise your kids or whatever it is, or you pray before your meals, if you're looking at any of those things, Christ is of zero value to you. Now, let me be very careful in my term. I am not saying that you cannot please God by doing those things, but I am saying that you cannot draw closer to God through doing those things. It, there is a, a massive difference if you believe that you raising your hand or you receiving baptism or you doing anything is what was a part of drawing you to Christ. Because if that's the case, there's a bubble in your cup. If that's the case, it was filled, but just not 
quite enough. However, if you can see that it was by grace and grace alone that God rescued you, and the cup is so completely filled that the surface tension is holding it, that whatever you add can't even fit in the cup. Your, your drop that is really just a mist just kind of and, and skates right over the top. Yeah, that's you. That's what you get to do. All of our deeds, all of our stuff, it is done because Christ has, there is nothing that we are bringing or adding for our salvation. If you added anything to the work of Christ, then the one you called Christ actually can't be Christ. Right? If you're adding, then he can't really be a savior. Think, I'm going to close with this. Think about the work of Jesus on the cross. And how ridiculous of an idea it would be for you to add something. The, not just the crucifixion, like walking in and, and being praised. And a week later, being mocked and spit upon, beat, ridiculed, naked. The creator being treated like that by the creation, but then being flogged to the point that flesh is being ripped from you, that, e that internal organs are, are, are visible, that your bones are visible, that uh, a, a coat is put on you and then ripped back off to make that pain even more enduring, that a, a crown of thorns is, is slammed into your flesh and into your head, that you have nails put through your hands and through your feet and you hang there. What, what God displays for us in Christ is, is the high watermark of, of human suffering. But it pales in comparison to spiritual suffering. And that was the thing, like as a kid, I always thought, well, Jesus' sacrifice could have been bigger if he was there for five minutes more. Or it could have been greater if he had endured something longer. Like one day, I'm just thinking like logically, like using arithmetic, it could have been more. But the point, and we see this in Hebrews, it says it this way, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Eternal salvation was born through the suffering of Christ. Not that it was just that many blows. It was an exact representation of the sin that we needed done. But God was giving us a visible example of something you and I can't even feel on the spiritual realm. The, the biggest pain was not the skin being ripped off or the crown of thorns or the nails going in. The biggest pain was the separation from his heavenly father that had never existed in all of time. That was the biggest pain, but the best way for us to appreciate it is to see the high watermark of human suffering. And when we see that, and, and I was talking to the students about this um, this week twice. If you look in the account of Mark, Jesus is offered wine. You know what I'm talking about? Like on a sponge, you hold it up, right? The first one, uh, typical like theory is that some noble women would bring a, a type of a narcotic that would cause the pain to be lessened. And that's the one that Jesus rejects as though he's saying, no, I'm taking all the pain, all the suffering. I'm not getting off because it, it's got to be in me and it's got to be in me alone and I've got to be sufficient alone. And they are going to see, my people are going to see, I am not going to numb any of the wrath of God because I must absorb it all for them. But then they bring him another one later on in the account of Mark. And this one, he, he starts crying out, Eli, Eli, like crying out to God. And they think, this is again, it depends on the commentator, um, that he might have been calling out to Elijah. We read this. And they say, whoa, 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 whoa. And so they go to give him something that would rejuvenate him. And he takes it. In every opportunity, Christ takes more and more punishment to display that it is through him 
and through him alone that we have hope. Uh, I'll give you this quote. Um, This is Jonathan Edwards. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. That's what we bring to the table. (laughs) Hi, I've got my sin. And God's like, you know what, I can fix that. And I can fix that exclusively through my son and to the greatest distance and to the greatest depth because of who he is and his sufficiency. That's why the reformers had to deviate. That's why they had to say, you can't buy this. You can't earn this. You can't do anything for it. Do you see him on the cross? Do you see his separation from the Father? Your only hope is in Christ and in Christ alone. I've got three prayers for us. These are going to be our applications, and then I'll close this in prayer. Um, In thinking about history, I would encourage us to be people who pray for boldness. Like the Reformers, we have to be willing to confront what we would consider small deviations. Think about how many of your friends claim to be Christians, but you question whether or not they truly are saved because of certain things that they believe. And and I, I would just tell you that in two months... If your thought is, I can fight that. You know, the reformers were willing to deviate. They were willing to kind of put their stake in the ground. If you feel like in two months, I'm going to say Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays. Can I just tell you, you're not quite cutting it. But if hell is at stake, it's got to be more than that kind of stuff. It's got to be willing to talk to people, willing to love people, willing to confront people. Because what they are believing is pointing them and sending them to hell. And you love them more than that. Secondly... Pray for supernatural faith. The sufficiency of Jesus was supernaturally obtained, and it must be supernaturally understood. Our our natural mind is bent to do things in a natural way. That's why the relics and the indulgences and the charity and the same stuff we get jacked up in our heads as though we're earning something today, that is incredibly real. And and I read Galatians 2.20 where it says, the life I now live I live by faith in the Son of God. And that faith is a gift of God. Pray that God would give you a supernatural perspective on what Christ has wrought in you if you're a believer. And if he hasn't, if you've been trusting in something other than him, pray that he would give you faith and draw you to himself. And then finally this, his exclusivity. Pray for a grace-saturated rest. If God recognized that we needed a prophet and he gave us Christ, and he recognized that we needed a priest, and he gave us Jesus, and he recognized that we needed a king, and he gave us Jesus, then regardless of what our neediness is, we have Jesus. It doesn't matter if it's like internal depression, lust, bigger marital family issues, bigger concerns about our country. It doesn't matter. If God has been willing to give us everything that we need in Christ, then we can rest and what he has already done. And not be people who are anxious ridden. But people who simply trust in who he is. I'm going to pray Romans 8 over us. And then we'll be done. If you go ahead and close your eyes. Father your word says. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us. Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son. But gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Father, may we recognize what we have in Christ. 
And may we recognize that that is something that is given, that, that is supernaturally brought and wrought through your spirit. And so would you cause us to be able to see not just the work that was done, that was exclusively Christ, but that was utterly and sufficiently His Help us not to be a people who are anxious, but to know that you have given us everything that we need in Christ. Make us people who are bold, who are willing to be like these reformers were, who went against the tides of their culture because they realized that souls were at stake. May we be bigger Christians than just Merry Christmas Christians. Would we point people to the truth and the reality of the gospel, knowing that it matters for all eternity, and you have given us this time in this place with this hope in Christ to take forward. And Father... May we rest in you, knowing that we have nothing else to rest in. Everything else is fleeting. Everything else is a bed of dust. And you have given us in Christ the deepest and the widest rest that we could ever hope for because of the work that he did on the behalf of all those who would trust in him and in him alone. Thank you for the work of Christ. Thank you for the love that you showed us in sending him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, y'all.